Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. And the first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. Listening. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank you. Catherine Tucker Windham, speaking at the age of 92 at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival um, about the importance of stories. We play that before every show and never get tired of listening to it. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to our November 2019 True Tales Live show, filmed at Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in, Port, uh, in New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and especially thanks to our studio audience. Give yourselves a hand. Our mission at True Tales Live 
is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we very much encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance that we provide to tellers, this is not a competition. Tonight we won't have any ranking or scoring or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart bind us together and inspire us, and that is why we're here. Our theme for tonight is The Last Straw. It's also our last show of the season, so thought it appropriate. The Last Straw is actually a shortened version of the straw that broke the camel's back, which I don't know if you knew this, I didn't. In the 16 and 1700s, they actually said, the last feather that broke the horse's back. In any case, we all know that feeling when circumstances conspire to push us in a certain direction or make us leap into action or let something go. Our four tellers tonight sure do. We're going to hear tonight from David Frainer, Christina Cook, Nancy Lukens, and Martin Rumscheidt. Our MC, Pat Spaulding, will introduce each teller to you before they take the stage. Following the stories, we'll have an interview that David Frainer will do with Nancy Lukens and Martin Rumscheidt. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up here to get us started. Come on, Pat. Hello, everyone. I forgot my reading glasses today. Just thought you all should know. But I wrote this in big print, so let's, let's see how it goes. First up, we have David Frainer. He is a member of our own True Tales Live production team, where he served or serves as our interviewer and time watcher. David is a retired Unitarian Universalist minister who recently served as co-chair of the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. David also served as MC of the monthly Portsmouth Poetry Hoot. In addition to all that, he and his wife, Lisa Rodermick, look, that's it. Good. Uh, founded Gentle Currents Wellness Center in Greenland, New Hampshire. David believes that first person storytelling can build bridges between individuals and even whole communities and that a well-told true tale can have an amazing capacity to help heal and uplift us all. The title of the story he'll tell us is My Last Straw, or I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, but by gosh, do my classmates really like me? The second part of that title pretty much says it all, <laughs> or not all of it. Come on up and tell us the story, David. <laughs> So the letter came in mid-January from our reunion chair, Pete Snedeker. Gentlemen, it read, it's time for our 50th year reunion. All the details are in the packet. Everybody should plan to attend. And you can register online. 50 years, 50 years 
Our 25th reunion was only like last week, right? Or maybe five years ago. But it couldn't possibly be 50 years. Now, there are a few things that you need to know. I graduated from Amherst College in 1969 during the height of the Vietnam War. The major goal of myself and all my classmates was not to get drafted and not to get sent to Vietnam. <clears throat> the spring before we graduated, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. were shot. That fall, some of the leaders of my class led a college-wide campus strike which ended up in a college-wide teach-in that took place in the gym and was actually quite constructive. And that year, when we graduated, we didn't have a yearbook because we voted to donate all of our money to a program for students from disadvantaged high schools to help them figure out how to get into colleges like Amherst and to thrive in those colleges. It was called A Better Chance, ABC. And this spring, they celebrated their 50th year as well. So we are pleased about that. Now, the letter read, gentlemen, not alumni and alumnae, not ladies and gentlemen, but gentlemen, because at the time, Amherst was an all-men's college. Um, as it happened, it was one of the last years that it was an all-men's college. So we were sort of the lame duck class, or one of the handful of lame duck classes for the all-men's college. And then, of course, it said, you may register online. Now, there wasn't an internet when we were in college. There wasn't a World Wide Web. There wasn't email. And there certainly wasn't any kind of online presence. In those days, computers were these great big machines that ran on punch cards. Anybody here remember punch card computers? Yeah, see? dating yourself, so, and me too. So that's by way of background. As I was continuing to read that letter, I was thinking, I, I really should go. In life, there are some things that you have to attend, I guess. Uh, family weddings, extended family funeral services, even when there are parts of your extended family that you just as soon not ever associate with again. And probably one of those is your 50th year college reunion. So I thought I should go. So I was excited and I was somewhat anxious. I was excited because on the whole, my experience in college was a pretty good one. I developed a small group of friends that I was looking forward to reconnecting with and catching up with. And I'd learned a few things in college. I'd learned how to think and I learned how to write the English sentence. <clears throat> but I was also somewhat anxious and it went all the way back to the beginning. In the fall of 1965, my parents piled my brother, my younger brother, and me into the back of our two-tone white, teal, blue, and white Chevy station wagon to drive from Plandome, New York, up to Amherst College. And that was all well and good. But before they, we got to that point, during the summer, I received a letter in the mail. You remember letters. And <laughs> about the uh, freshman orientation. And it turned out there was a reading list. There were two books on that list. One was Childhood and Society by the psychologist, psychoanalyst Eric Erickson. And the other book was Letters to a Young Poet by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. I read both of those books cover to cover. 
And although I was relatively intelligent, I barely understood a word of either of them. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if there are other uh, soon-to-be classmates of mine who read these books and understood them, then right off the bat, I was in pretty big trouble. When I got to, uh, to Amherst uh, during freshman orientation, the dean of uh, freshmen, Dean Reed, came around to give what I think he thought of as a pep talk, and it went something like this. Now, boys, <laughs> you're here because you all got really good grades in high school. This isn't high school. <laughs> you're now part of a very competitive elite college environment. And you can count on this. On average, your grades are going to go down 11 points. If you were like a medium A student, you might be a B minus student, get B minus student grades here at Amherst. And be thankful for those grades, boys, so study hard. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Um, that was supposed to be his pep talk. <laughs> that was supposed to motivate us, motivate me. Actually, I learned some years later that he was fired not long after that, but that didn't do me any good because I wasn't an A student in high school. The reason I got into Amherst, I think, is because I was really active in after-school activities. You wouldn't notice it to look at me now, but I used to run the quarter mile on the track team. I sang in the chorus. I was active in the drama group. I was acting in children's drama production. Um, I was a member of the student council, and I even was a member of the French club. So uh, for all doing all that, I was... Uh, along with a few other students, became one of the members of the Manhasset Silver M Society, Manhasset High School. <clears throat> but as a student, academically, I was like a middling B plus, B, B minus kind of student. So my takeaway from Dean Reed's motivational speech was, I'm doomed. <laughs> Absolutely doomed. So all of this came sort of rushing back to me as I was reading through this letter. And the thought occurred to me that I was in some sort of trouble here, as I was saying. Now, after college, I went to divinity school in Chicago, and I became a Unitarian Universalist minister. And that, that's actually a whole other story for another time. But <clears throat> in our schedule, it said, uh, that there was going to be a special memorial service just for the uh, 50-year reunion class. And I was thinking, you know, I should go and I should volunteer to help out. Um, other classes that were also reuning at the same time, they had a memorial service too, but they had to do it somewhere else. We were given Johnson Chapel, the oldest building, the most historic building on the campus. And and. Uh, thought, well, you know, I, I could help out, but I had co-led the service during our 25th year reunion with Jürgen Leas, who was an Anglican Episcopal priest. And we had gotten along fine. I didn't know him all that well, but I thought, well, he'll do a pretty good job. But some things had changed between the 25th and now. And Jürgen was an even stranger ecclesiastical cat. Um, in 2012, as it turned out, then uh, Pope Benedict issued an edict that any Anglican priest living and working in North America who happened to be married could be ordained as a Catholic priest uh, to the priesthood 
as long as they were an Anglican priest and they were in, living in North America. So Jürgen, who was and is married, applied and became a Catholic priest. So we are going to have this Anglican Catholic priest leading our 50th year, our one and only 50th year reunion memorial service. I was thinking, I should really help out. <laughs> so I put the letter in the, to do later and uh, pile and didn't look at it again until mid-May when I realized I really need to make a decision about this. And I decided to go, and we went, um, <clears throat> but I decided not to volunteer. Now, I need to say, I wasn't much of an alumnus. My father and his brother, they were really good alumni types. They were both well-known on campus when they were there. My father went to every single class reunion. He donated money to every year's alumni fund, and I pretty much didn't do any of those things. Um, so I was sort of low man on the family totem pole, you might say. I was a little bit intimidated. And I was even more intimidated by my classmates. I didn't know most of them really well, but I knew a lot about their stories. They were heads of academic departments in large universities. They were Wall Street investment bankers. They were lawyers at prestigious law firms where they were partners in Boston or New York or Philadelphia or Chicago. They were heads of hospitals, CEOs of Fortune 1000 companies. Um, so that was them, and I was this minister from a small liberal Protestant denomination. I never served a really large church. I never served a really historic church. Um, I mostly worked with small congregations and often startup congregations. So I was feeling fairly intimidated by my feelings about all of my classmates. And I felt like I had a right to those feelings, too. So, 50 years, I was still curious. So at the end of May, Lisa and I wound up uh, walking into the alumni house registration. And not long after we got there, we ran into my freshman roommate, Bill Thompson, and his wife. And Bill had been there for a little while. So, and one of the first things out of his mouth, David, are you going to co-lead the memorial service along with Jurgen? I said, no, they didn't ask me and I didn't volunteer. Now, you need to understand, Bill was a, one of these super organizers. He led the intrafraternity council when he was at Amherst. There haven't been fraternities in Amherst for decades, but he led that at the time. So unbeknownst to me, Bill got to work. And a few hours, I think it was later, the president of the class, Bill Hart, and Pete Snedeker, the reunion chair, came up to me and said, David, will you co-lead the memorial service uh, for our 50th year reunion? And without hesitation, because I was entirely intimidated, I said, of course. <clears throat> Almost immediately, I regretted it for a number of reasons. First of all, I had two days to prepare. Now, normally when there's a memorial service required, even if someone dies fairly quickly, I have the better part of a week to prepare. Here I had just two days. And not only that, when I'm working on creating a memorial service, I have all my books and worship materials right by me in my office. They were over 100 miles away, so I didn't have anything to really work with. So I, I thought right away that uh, I was maybe in big trouble, and I was trying to figure out what I would say 
and what I was going to do. Um, so as it happened, Lisa and I were staying with her sister who lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, down the road. And Mary let me use her computer and her printer. So thank goodness for the internet. I got online and began to try to check out readings or meditations that had been posted by colleagues. And I found some that I liked, and I found some that I discarded, and I found some that I modified and I liked, and then I discarded, all the while trying to figure out how each of these readings or meditations would fit together and having absolutely no idea how this was going to work out in terms of working alongside of Jürgen. So this was a big deal to me. This was a, their one and only 50th year memorial service, and to me this was like working on a high wire without any kind of net. Uh, so I was sort of petrified. But I worked on it Friday night and I missed a Friday night uh, activity, which wasn't all that important, and worked on it Saturday. And finally, by the end of the evening Saturday, I had done what I could do and I had the service to, as together as I possibly could. So <clears throat> uh, then we did finally get together during the course of the week, a weekend. Um, Jürgen and I planned the service and it seemed like it was going to turn out pretty well. I was going to do some opening words, and we'd have uh, readings and meditations leading into the necrology. 38 people, had, classmates of ours, had passed about 12%. And so we were going to do some readings and meditations leading into the necrology. Each of us would say three names at a time and have a break, and then three more names taking turns, and then readings and prayers and closing words. Um, so that seemed like a pretty good plan. Um, then there was the question of what I was going to wear. Now, when I do a memorial service, I usually wear a suit, a white shirt, a dark tie, and I wear my academic robe. And I do that as a form of respect because I believe that that's an appropriate thing to do for a memorial service. Well, I didn't have any suit. As it happens, for reasons I do not understand, I had packed a pair of blue pants and a white shirt and a dark tie, but I didn't have any suit and I certainly didn't have my academic robe. So I was feeling like people might misunderstand me and thinking that I was being disrespectful by being dressed that way. But then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is a college campus. There must be a zillion academic robes all across the campus. So I went over to the uh, young person, a college student who was coordinating our headquarters area and she contacted someone in the alumni office and they thought, sure, we can put our hands on an academic robe, not to worry. A day went by, no robe. <laughs> what they did find was an Amherst College alb. An alb is sort of a scarf-like thing that goes around your neck and hangs down. It was old, it was tattered, and it has split down one seam. <laughs> and that was it. So, so you have to imagine this picture. It's Sunday morning, it's nine o'clock, the Johnson Chapel's beginning to fill up. Um, we've done everything that we can to prepare. And there I am in my dark blue pants, my white shirt, my dark tie, and my tattered Amherst alb. And there's Jürgen Lius in full Anglican Catholic regalia. <laughs> Both of us sitting in our chairs, ready to go. Well, the service went perfectly. I didn't say any of the names wrong. There were no goofs or gaffes. Um, and we, fit, we sort of hit the right uh, feeling for the service. It wasn't maudlin, it wasn't overly sentimental, but it was thoroughly respectful. And people came up to us, both of us afterwards, and were just so appreciative. Um, my college roommate friend 
Bill Thompson, his wife, came up with handshakes and hugs, and my junior and senior roommate, Bill Saunders, and his wife came up and handshakes and hugs, and there were people who, men that I barely knew or didn't know who came up to me, with some of them with tears in their eyes, saying how much they really had appreciated the service. I was, I was blown away. I was just overwhelmed. But that wasn't actually the final moment. There was one more. When Lisa and I were walking back to our uh, head, reunion headquarters, we ran into a couple that I didn't know. His name was Don Colburn and his wife, Nell. Now it turned out, as I later learned, Don had been uh, a fairly successful, uh, accomplished uh, reporter and writer for the Oregonian, the Portland newspaper. And when he retired, he turned to poetry and he won a set of awards and he published three books of poetry. So here was this guy who was a really accomplished poet and he came up to me and he was saying, David, I so appreciate all that you did in the memorial service and the way that you used the poetry and, and infused it and fit it together with Jurgen's work. I, I just liked it so much. And then as a token of that, here's a copy of my book that's just been published and he handed it to me. I was just blown away. I, I was stunned and in the middle of this conversation, I had this overwhelming feeling, like an oceanic feeling just washed right over me and I realized I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and my classmates appreciate me. So, but it wasn't an intellectual experience, it was a fully emotional feeling, and it was just continued to wash over me. And then I realized how much I appreciated my classmates. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's no difference among us here. We're all in this together. And then I realized what I should have realized all along, that what was really important was my own ability to accept myself, right? warts and all. I was just blown away, just blown away. I couldn't believe that this had happened. As we were coming towards the end of our conversation, Don said to me, you know, I want to say I really appreciated the Sandberg poem that you used as part of the benediction. And Carl Sandberg wrote, gather the stars if you wish it so, Gather the songs and keep them. Gather the faces of women and men. Gather for years and years and then loosen your hands, let go, and say goodbye. Let the stars and the songs go. Let the faces and years go. Loosen your hands, let go, and say goodbye. David. Next up, we have Christina Cook. She is a retired elementary school teacher who enjoys hiking and biking around New Hampshire. This is the first time that she has created her own true tale to share and perform in front of an audience. Us. <laughs> you can save that for later. She'll be, we'll, we'll applaud her story. Christina says about her story, we all have some kind of baggage that erodes our confidence. This story is about finding the confidence to speak up for myself. The title of her story is appropriately enough. Speak up. Come on up. Come on up to speak.
So I was standing outside Grand Central Station in New York City in the heat of, the, of August, and my eyes were brimming with tears. I, my bag, the wheels on my bag had suddenly gotten sticky, and they were delaminating. And the bag was full of the books and papers of a week-long conference that was filling my brain uh, with the teaching of reading and writing. I was hot, I was tired, and I was frustrated. Grand Central Station no longer had bag storage after the events of 9-11. And I was told um, the nearest storage was 10 blocks away. I, I thought about taking a taxi, um, but it was close to $15 one way, and I had to get back to the station because I was meeting my friends. We were all going out for my birthday. And then at the end of the evening, I'd have to get my bag and then go back to the station again. I tried calling my brother. He used to live in New York, and I thought maybe he have an idea of what to do, but he didn't answer. I pulled down my sunglasses to hide my 50-year-old tears of frustration. Um, I um, was very frustrated, but I decided to go on to the storage. And I started to walk down, and I suddenly looked up, and I saw the waving flag of the Yale Club. And I thought, oh, maybe I could leave my bag there. Um, my dad had been um, a member of the Yale, of the college, and he had graduated in 1931. And at some point, he, he got a job in New York City and became a member of this social um, university club. And I remember going there with him, um, with my father, when I was about, probably about 13. Um, I have to say, I just never liked the club. I think when the university went co-ed, the club also went co-ed, but for some reason initially they didn't allow the women to use, like, use the bar and the athletic facilities. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, but, and I just remember going there with my dad and not being able to go anywhere but in the front hallway with the black, um, it had checkered black and tan tile, and, um, and I remember sitting on some old couch in the hallway while my dad was talking to someone somewhere in the building. I remember um, a, a wood-paneled staircase that went up half a flight, and I remember like going up just to peek to see what was up there, and I remember a big, tall uh, room with lots of men sitting in chairs smoking. Um, and then I remember on this panel of the staircase was a plaque from my dad for his time um, as president of the club. So he was, he was very involved when he was alive there. And um, so I thought, I'm going to go across. So I crossed the street, I walked in, and I got the nice cool air conditioning on my sweaty face and recognizing the, the checkered floor and then the, and the wood tiled, uh, or the wood paneled staircase. Um, I also was noticing men in business suits and I totally felt, felt out of place in my t-shirt and shorts. But I went over to the right to the um, front desk and I stood there and I waited and I waited. The clerk was talking to someone who was sitting at a desk and both their backs were to me. And and I thought to myself, if I, was, if I was a real New Yorker, I would have said, excuse me, but I didn't. I just waited. 
And finally, the clerk turned around and came over and said, can I help you? And I said, my dad used to be a member here, and I was wondering if I could leave my bag. And she said, uh, just a minute. So she went back to the guy at the desk, and they whispered. He never turned around. She came back and said, I'm afraid not. And I said, OK. And I turned and left and went out the door, thinking, why didn't I speak up? Why didn't I say more? Oh, they probably don't even remember him. And I was just a mess in a t-shirt and shorts. And I can't keep up with fast-paced New Yorkers. I was on the brink of tears again with my frustrations of my lack of confidence. So, but the only bright thing was that the plastic had really come off my, the wheel of my bag and I could actually pull it easier, though a little lopsided. So I decided to continue on towards the storage area. And I walked down a couple of blocks and then up another block and, and I see a sign on the sidewalk that says $45 haircut and I thought, Oh, wow, that's a good price for a haircut in New York City. And I kind of needed a haircut. Um, I hadn't had one probably in like four or five months. And I like getting a haircut in different places because, I don't know, my hair is just straight and it just doesn't do anything. I've never had a cut that was really that exciting. So I thought, why not get a birthday haircut? So I had time like before meeting my friends. So I went in and they had an appointment right then. And I got this um, older Chinese guy. He didn't really speak a lot of English, but we could communicate. And I basically say, said, do, what you, you know, do whatever you want, because I can't do anything with it. And it just sits there. And so he set me over to get my hair washed. And I lay back, relaxing in that, in that chair, getting my hair washed, and the massage on my head. I almost fell asleep. I, I really didn't realize how tired I was. Um, and then I went back over um, to get my haircut, and he really took his time. It was a really detailed haircut. Um, and we didn't talk. Uh, I just relaxed and let my mind relax. And I thought about, you know, I, I'm going to have to change my clothes to go out in the, on the, in the city with my friends, and that storage place might not have a place to do that. So maybe I could use the bathroom here. So that's what I thought about. And then probably almost an hour, he finished cutting my hair. He spun me around to see my haircut. And I was like, wow, that's the best haircut I've ever had. It was shorter. It had like a nice style. And he hadn't put a lot of stuff in it. So it was just the way I like it. And um, I was thrilled. And I thanked him. I went and paid got my bag, went into the bathroom, laid it out on the floor, and um, took out um, my tan, sleeveless, cowl neck uh, blouse, little form-fitting, and um, my capri, black tight capri pants and sandals. I don't usually wear um, tight clothes, a little bit more loose-fitting, but my friend Mary Beth had taken me shopping and um, was trying to spruce up my wardrobe. <laughs> and she was one of my friends I was meeting, so I had to wear it. So I um, zipped up my bag, and I walked out to the, to the, out to the front of the uh, salon on the sidewalk. And I stood there, feeling pretty good. And I thought, should I walk back to the, or up to the storage? 
or should I go back to the Yale Club? Now, I have a different haircut, I have this hot new outfit, they might not remember me, and I could speak up. This could be like my last chance. So I turned and I went back to that Yale Club. And this time when I walked in, I walked right to the back counter where the coat room was that I had remembered seeing. And I went right up and I said, I'd like to leave my bag. And the man said, yeah, sure. And he handed me a luggage tag and I handed him my bag. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is great. This is right next to the station. I can get my bag at the end of the evening. This is perfect. And then I thought, oh shoot, I think I kind of remember a gates closing on this thing. And then how late are they open? What if I'm here too late to get my bag that I need? I kind of scanned for like hours, but I didn't see anything. So I turned back to the guy and I said, how late are you open till? He said, are you a member? <laughs> and I said, yes, my dad is. Do you need his name? And he said, no, no, we're open all the time. And I said, thanks. And I walked out to the door feeling confident, <laughs> ready to meet my friends with a new hairstyle, a hot new outfit, and no baggage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm inspired to get a new outfit. <laughs> yeah, haircut. Thanks, Christina. Next up, we have Nancy Lukens. She retired from UNH in 2009 as Professor Emerita of German and Women's Studies. She now lives in Dover with her husband, Martin Rumscheidt. At various stages of her life, Nancy has lived in Austria and Germany, beginning with a high school homestay that raised most of the questions she continues to explore to this day. When not writing and speaking about the German resistance to Hitler, Nancy enjoys singing, creative time with children, reading, making costumes and interesting stuff and digging into other playful projects. Two questions that drive her work, play and politics are, what do violence and the abuse of power do to people? And how does nonviolent resistance to that abuse of power work? Tonight, she recount details from the 60s when she spent a semester in divided Berlin just five years after East Berlin built the infamous wall in 1961. Her story is titled Christmas Eve Detour. Come on up, Nancy. Just a little um, historic moment. This is November 2019, 30 years exactly after the opening of the Berlin Wall, 1989. I was in Berlin in 1966, 26 years 
before that. In those 26 years, life was different. The thin blue airmail envelope, remember letters, with German stamps jumped out at me from the pile of bills. Mom, it's from Berlin. I was home for spring break from college, waiting for that envelope. I almost wet my pants ripping it open. <laughs> the letter from the Free University of Berlin consisted of two lines. You are admitted for fall semester, 1966-67, in German studies. Fees, 67 German marks. What? Four marks to the dollar. $17? <laughs> it had to be a misprint. I'd been working all year to save up for a semester abroad. $17. My German professor explained that higher education in Germany is government funded. Hey, how lucky was that? I was so excited. I knew one person in Germany, Trouty, my high school's first exchange student and my best buddy senior year. She had harassed me ever since we graduated and she'd gone home to come study in Germany and visit her in Saarbrücken, southwest Germany near the French border. Was it really about to happen three years later? Well, yeah. Was I scared? Not really. My German was pretty good. I passed the language exams to be admitted as a regular student. I could read cultural history, sort of, poetry, and bus schedules. How could I lose? I was ready, right? Little did I know. I wake up as the flight attendant wheels past with coffee. Out the window, I see a colorful patchwork of small farms and, and little villages with red tile roofs. Wow. The man next to me notices my excitement and points down toward a row of guard towers. Uh, the Russians, and, and now you see the zone. Till the landing in Berlin, you, west, do you understand? Well, no, I didn't, not at all. Russians, butterflies, wobbly knees. It was the Cold War, you know? I mean, you know, we had to hide under our desks and everything at home. Um, right, the zone? Yes, he explained, the, the Soviet occupation zone. We're flying over it now. See the large collective farms? We'll be in Berlin soon. Phew, I thought, I thought I was on the wrong plane. It was October 1966. I had turned 21 that summer. Most of the students I met with at the Adam von Trott House in Berlin were born after the war, like me, and we're making connections between Hitler's fascism of 33 to 45, current trends they saw in West Germany, questions about what their parents were doing during the war. Their parents weren't really happy to hear those questions. And then, of course, the U.S. and Vietnam. We would ride the double-decker number 48 bus to the university together about 40 minutes in to the city, we take walks. The, the dorm was on a beautiful lake. We debate, read books, talk about them. Some people played instruments, we do music, and we laughed a lot. And some wine. 
Had I heard Professor Goibitza, the only one speaking out in support of the student strikes? Did I want to come along to visit East German, East Berlin friends? They would let me off at Checkpoint Charlie. If you know Berlin, maybe you've heard of Checkpoint Charlie, where the Americans would cross at the American checkpoint to the Soviet side of Berlin, and then the other nationalities were across at their checkpoints to the Soviet side of East Berlin. This was happening too fast. But there I was, blissfully clueless. If you remember 1989, you may not know about the 26 years before, there was a lot of emotion among the people I was with. Some of them were West German, some of them were Berliners who didn't know if they wanted to go to the East because there were lots of issues, right? But there we were, all of a sudden, eating Advent cake in the home of a pastor in what I thought was a communist country full of atheists. The children had a candlelight procession down the stairs and were singing Advent hymns that I knew in English. I loved hearing them in German. But where was I anyway? I was learning to listen. Lots of questions. How lucky was I? Nancy, telephone für dich. It was Trouty on the shared hall phone, long distance from Saarbrücken. We'd been writing each other often, you know, no cell phones, no email. This must be urgent. She's calling me? Nancy, it's almost December. You're coming to Saarbrücken for Christmas, right? So is Peter. Trouty had told me about her really good friend, family of, friend of the family, a political science grad student in Berlin, told us to look each other up. We hadn't quite managed to get together yet, but I knew he was there. Peter and I met for coffee. He talks a mile a minute, smiling but serious. Why is he telling me about exporting a VW to the US and getting a lot of dollars to send his family? More questions flood my brain. What do I think of Johnson's latest thing about Vietnam? Are my friends getting drafted? Are they scared of getting drafted? He's, he cuts to the quick. So Trouty invited us both for Christmas. I can drive. I'll have a full trunk, so one small bag, okay? Talk about lucky, I don't even have to look at train schedules. I'm already picturing Trouty's grin and hearing her laugh. Peter stays on task. I'll pick you up at 12 on the 24th. We'll be in Saarbrücken in time to help light the tree. They always light the tree Christmas Eve, not before, right? <clears throat> so, Christmas Eve, we're off. The dorm is very close to the border, actually, to, to the west. We're heading to where you get on the transit highway from West Berlin through the Soviet zone to West Germany. The American soldier asks for our passports. I proudly hand mine to Peter. He hands mine and his out the window for inspection. Silence. The young lady's visa, asks the guard. Peter turns pale. Visa, I ask, what visa? 
that's the passport I flew in with. That's when I learned that flying to Berlin via the three air corridors through the Soviet zone, but they were allowed to the allied forces of the West, you didn't need a visa. On the other hand, driving through the Soviet zone to West Germany, you did. Peter was amazingly calm as he told me how to get to East Berlin to get a visa. <laughs> Bus 48 was the first step. He dropped me off there. I didn't um, quite know why he couldn't go with me, but it was clear. He said he'd wait, but hurry. I was scared. <laughs> Panicked is better. Christmas Eve, heading for East Berlin instead of West Germany. Maybe kind of like that Advent Sunday, but now without cake and candles. Pitch dark, 2.30 in the afternoon. Berlin is quite far north. Clueless, looking for a visa office. Would it even be open? I started down the main drag, and I saw one building with lights on. Of course, there were lots of Christmas things, and, and also the socialist banner that said, Peace through socialism. <laughs> we, we kind of tended to ignore those, but there was something to it. <laughs> Hola, senorita! A man's voice came from a battered red pickup, loaded to the roof with cases of tomatoes. I was cold. I was scared. Christmas Eve and I'm on the street in East Berlin getting catcalled by some Spanish dude? <laughs> I didn't say dude in 1966, but you know. I was shaking so hard, I forgot all about the visa. I wanted to go home. That was the last straw. Not really, there were more. <laughs> Office for visa? Where? He said. He was more pleading than threatening at that point. I pointed to the building I thought it might be. The senor took his truck full of tomatoes and drove it right onto the sidewalk. I hoped he maybe didn't get caught, but I went ahead and I did find the door in that building, and within an hour, after a lot of very confusing sort of conversation, I, was, I had a visa stamped in my passport. There I was on the dark street again, freezing. <laughs> Is Peter even going to be there? Or would he have given up and left by the time I finally got way back south to where we were meeting? Okay, checkpoint Charlie, <clears throat> back through. Russian soldier, no man's land, train, American soldier, where are you going? Hmm, right, all that, I got through. Then, where's the 48 bus? No idea. Uh, at an intersection that turned out not to be the 48 starting point, I sat on the curb and bawled. <sighs> Hola, senorita. Give me a break. Am I hallucinating? I'm in West Berlin. Same guy. He didn't go through Checkpoint Charlie. He's a foreigner. Don't worry, Nancy. Stop rationalizing things. You're, you're overworking things. No. Senor Tomato was taking three cases of tomatoes out of the passenger seat of his truck, gesturing to me to get in and putting them in my lap. I take you where you're going. Oh. Never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined that the way to Trouty's for Christmas near the French border 
all the way through the Soviet sector and West Germany would involve holding three cases of tomatoes on my lap in the front seat of a Spanish guest worker's pickup truck, barreling south to the transit highway entrance, praying that Peter would be there, and thinking, where is he supposed to be going? He can't be going west. Not to worry about Senora. He's Senora. He's fine. I did ask, where are you going? Oh, I, I'm taking the tomatoes to the East Berlin Airport at Schönefeld. It's not due till tomorrow morning. We're fine. Peter was waiting. I introduced him to Senor Tomato. That's what I called him by then. We said Merry Christmas, and we're on our way. The tree was lit when we arrived at Trouty's. Trouty explained to me later that Peter was a political refugee with a forged passport. No way he would chance going to East Berlin. He arranged once a year to meet his relatives at rest stops on that transit highway because his relatives could go to those rest stops from their homes in East Germany. He had missed their Christmas rendezvous. They wouldn't know why until he could have a message delivered. The Christmas, that Christmas Eve, I didn't just learn about the wall and the division of Germany and the transit highway and visas and passports. Above all, I learned about true friendship from a foreign worker and a refugee. Gracias, Senor Tomato. Danke, Peter. Thank you. Gracias, Senor Tomato. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. I like that guy. Up next, we have Martin Rumscheidt. He was born in 1935 in Hitler's Germany in the industrial town of Leuna, where his father worked in the company's research laboratories. Martin experienced World War II from the initial victories of the German armed forces through their utter defeat six years later. He received his primary and secondary education in Germany and Switzerland. Then, with his parents and four younger brothers and sisters, came to Canada in 1952, where he studied at McGill University and sought ordination in the United Church of Canada. After serving in three congregations, Martin accepted a call to teach at the University of Windsor and at the Atlantic School of Theology until his retirement in 2002. He has three children and six grandchildren from his first marriage and is now married to our own Nancy Lukens, who just told the story, both living in Dover. The title of Martin's story is A Tale of Redemption. Come on up, Martin. My first comment is to the other preacher. <clears throat> <laughs> what do I do for an encore? Yeah. And I um, was really taken by the two stories. Nancy, I reminded 
my left-hand neighbor, that you had your hair cut yesterday. It makes all the difference. Four months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take you into the uh, German context, and particularly in relationship to what we know as the Holocaust. My father's work for all the time that he worked was in one company over, for over 40 years and more. And the company had become the largest chemical complex in Europe before the war. And when Hitler came to power, the company aligned itself with the Nazi purposes and shifted into major war preparation productions. And my father became involved in that work. World War II started out, and uh, the Allied air forces could penetrate Germany in the west and bomb the industry. So IG Farben, that's the name of the company, decided to locate in the east, far away from the Allied air forces. The Russians didn't have much of an air force to worry about, so they moved east, they moved into Poland, found an area where they built a huge factory, in a town in Polish Oswienczym, in German Auschwitz. The company built this huge uh, factory entirely with slave labor from the concentration camps. A private company and the SS had entered into a contract where the SS enriched itself and the company could follow the procedures that the Nazis had instituted, namely the elimination of Jews and other people. And the company developed its program called Extermination Through Labor, which involved, I won't go into the details, which involved feeding persons long enough that you could be sure they'd be dead after three weeks. That's my father's company. <clears throat> Father rose up in the company to a middle executive level where a number of decisions were made. And gradually, after I graduated with, with an arts degree and then was into postgraduate study, I studied some of the German involvement, particularly the church's involvement, in this program of the destruction of Jews. Eventually, I began talking to my father. <clears throat> And I want to tell you very briefly about a conversation that he and I had, in German, of course, that nearly turned into a catastrophe. My father was really reluctant to enter into this kind of conversation. But because I kept pressing, pressing him a little bit, and then showed, showed him some of my research, he engaged in the discussions. But then on that particular day, over 40 years ago, he said, one more question and our relationship is finished. I didn't know that I got so, so close to him that he was prepared to say that. I gave him my word, I will not ask you any more questions, which I kept, but I asked questions elsewhere. And those questions led me to the point where I decided I needed to go to Auschwitz myself. I needed to be in the area where all this stuff was taking place 
and then have a look at the factory itself, where Dad was visiting the head of that project, who happened to be an almost next-door neighbor to where I was born. I knew this guy, I knew his family, and many of the names that father mentioned, his fellow executive members, were neighbors in the town, two of whom I knew really quite well. They lived nearby. One of them had a swimming pool that I would often go and swim. And then to confront what these people were doing in Auschwitz with what I knew about these persons was a very hard nut to crack. It still is. I decided I'd go to Auschwitz. And I was talking, this is in 1993 now, I've decided I have to go myself and be there. And I talked to a Canadian colleague, uh, a woman scholar in Holocaust studies, about my plan. And she said, um, you know, I'd been planning to go, maybe we can go together. This lady is Jewish. She is a wonderful Jewish Sarah. We decided we would go together, and the next year we made our plan come true. We went to Auschwitz, and we were able to find, when, when we were in Poland, in Krakow, we were able to find a man who had his own taxi, and he had overheard our conversations, and he said, uh, look, if, if you want me, I will be available for you for $80 US for the whole day. Now, Sarah and I had planned not to join a tourist group, or another larger group, we wanted to go alone, be alone together. So the next morning he picks us up and we drove to the camp, camp number one. You may know that was a Polish military barracks, which the Nazis had confiscated, turned into a jail. And they had, over the entrance, they had put this, this utterly cynical gate expression, Arbeit macht frei, Labor makes you free, which translated into my language now is labor sends you up in smoke, and then you're free, yeah. But Sarah said all of a sudden, Martin, I can't. I can't, I can't go in here. I cannot go in here. We talked about, I did most of the talking for about 20 minutes, and finally I said to her, let's go. I'll hold your hand. We'll go in together, and we'll stay together. She agreed. We walked in, and then we went to those various buildings, and after the second building, we split up. There's such a huge emotion that takes over, and you need to process it, and to be together with someone else, it doesn't work. So we were, went alone for three hours looking at all these things. We finally met and then went back to our tech cab driver. And he then took us to the second camp, Auschwitz number two, Birkenau, which had been built for one purpose only, and that is killing people, exterminating people. And he dropped us off, and uh, I don't know whether you know any of the pictures of Auschwitz number two. There is a railroad track that goes in under a tower, and, and, and a guard station is above that, the train tracks. So one single line of, of train going in, which then splits into four or five side uh, tracks where the selection ramps are. So you have all these trains rolling in with up, up to over 10,000 people per train. You may have had five trains in there. 
And as we walked on those, I could hear German shepherds barking, German guards yelling. But the worst thing was I could hear the shrieks, fear-driven shrieks by mothers and fathers when their children were taken away. And blimey, I can hear those shrieks now when I think of the southern border of our country to Mexico. The same fear. And that just overwhelmed me. Sarah and I kept going. We walked. This is a huge area. And finally, um, we, we stayed together in the second camp, holding each other. And uh, finally, I said to her, look, I, 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 when we leave, I cannot go back over the selection ramps. Let's find another way out. And she said, look, over there is a ditch and there's the fence and underneath is a space where we can get out. Wonderful solution. So we went over there and she went down into the ditch. She said, come on, Martin. She took my hand and I went down into the ditch. Then we went under the, under the fence, came out on the other side. And she went up on the, on the fence, on, 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 out of the ditch. And she said, uh, give me your hand. She helped me out of, the, out of the ditch. That was at the end of the whole day. It strikes me, even when I, every time I think about this, we reversed one of the laws of Auschwitz. I am the German male who took the Jewish woman by the hand into the camp. That was a typical German procedure. And she, the Jewish woman, took the German out of the camp. That's redemption. Thank you. Amazing stories tonight. Um, thanks so much to tonight's four wonderful tellers and to all of our 2019 storytellers. We still have announcements and the interview coming up, but we'd like to take a few minutes first um, in the spirit of gratitude that's invoked this time of year to hear from a few folks about something that they're think thankful for at this time in their lives. Um, we'll just spend a few minutes doing that. First, we have some gratitude from the True Tales Live crew that I'm going to deliver. Three years ago tonight, True Tales Live launched here at PPM-TV. Since then, we have created 28 shows at PPM-TV with a growing audience. Since we started the show back in 2014, we have done 64 shows, heard from 160 different tellers, and connected to audiences totaling about 1,800 people. Uh, I'm thankful to John for compiling those figures. <laughs> <laughs> We're really, really grateful to everyone at PPM-TV for having us 
for producing the show and supporting us so much and being able to. We literally couldn't do it without them. We're also so grateful to all the people who have been willing to stand up and share their stories and to all of those who come to listen and connect to those stories. Thank you all so much. Now, Pat has a little story of gratitude to share. She's next. Okay, thanks, Amy. Now, this, this is not yet a story. I think it will be, though. I'm just going to try to get a couple of the, the points of um, gratitude. Uh, it has to do with this summer uh, and my boat. I drive a whaler, a 13-foot whaler. It's the only way to get to my camp. It's on a lake with lots of wind. And um, I'm a capable woman, pretty much. But there's certain things that are a little difficult to do. At the end of the season, you get the uh, whaler out of the water and on the trailer and um, have somebody take the, the motor, fix it, and cover it, and yada, yada, yada. So I hired somebody to do it for the first time. Rather than dealing with all this myself with volunteers, I hired an official person to do that who said he was a professional, he was capable, and he was going to do what needed to be done. So he did what needed to be done. And then um, had a little difficulty getting um, the boat back in in the spring. That was over the winter. Finally, sort of a last-minute thing. OK, we can do it this afternoon. Meet me, blah, 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 blah. And um, he helped me launch my boat. Now, I had not run the motor. But he said, no problem. I ran it. It's, it's good. It's good. And because it was done so quickly, I did not have a paddle in the boat, nor did I have a life jacket. That's OK. Whalers don't sink. So I, I didn't feel like I would die or anything. But he just like, OK, we're done. I'm a professional. I'm gone. And the motor had started, and I went out into the lake, and the motor quit. And it was windy. And the motor wouldn't start again. And I tried it in reverse. And I, I was in a predicament that felt kind of panicky, this capable woman that I am. And uh, because it was windy, I, ha I had no paddle. I couldn't really get into shore. And I couldn't move. I didn't know what to do. I was literally up the blankety-blank lake without a paddle. <laughs> and so I was filled with fear and angst and loneliness and anger at Mr. Capable, who said he could fix it, and he didn't. And I um, was finally uh, kind of hovered as best I could around the landing, and I looked for somebody to save me. And there were four kayakers that were coming out. and so. You know, they were getting their kayaks out, and I, I tried to maneuver this. I mean, I, my boat would go a little bit in reverse. It just every time you put it forward, it would. And um, so I, I yelled to the kayakers, help me. And um, they did. These darn kayakers, they said, what do you need? Catch me. And they stepped in the water, and they got the boat. And, they, and I'm all quivery, and, I'm, and they said, where do you want to go? What do you do? And I said, I don't know. Um, so it kind of fell apart with these four strangers. Um, but they kept asking me, well, what do you need now? I'm trying to text friends. Nobody's home. And they, they helped me get the boat out. They helped me get it to the lot. They helped me put it on the trailer. They, they helped me like 
Good Samaritans would do. They helped me feel like, wow, um, there are good people, there are good strangers, and man, do I owe them some cocktails. <laughs> so I'm thankful for the four kayakers who saved me this summer. <laughs> Anyone in the audience wanting to share? It can be way shorter and less of a story. Don't, don't worry, Dad. Set the bar a little oh, high. Yes, come on, Gail. No, it's okay. Just, you know. Uh, this is uh, motivated by David's story of a reunion. I never thought in a million years that I would be thankful that I went to my high school's 50th reunion, which I did about a month ago. I didn't want to go all that high school anxiety and the angst and I'm incompetent and I'm not, but anyway, I went and it took me 50 years, but I am over all of that and I am very <laughs> thankful to be a responsible, reasonably intelligent, functioning adult. <laughs> Is that Nancy saying yes? Just to come up, can't you just say No, we won't hear you through the... So... Here's Nancy. Hi, just to say thank you for this moment, this moment right here and now, that I am healthy, I am alive, I live in this community. When I think of all the things that are going on in our country and in the world, I think this is an incredible moment that we are here and we can listen to each other tell stories and have that gratitude um, for this moment. That's all I have to say. We have so much work to do as people and as a country and I hope we, that we continue until we resolve some of our issues. And I'm thankful for the fact that I know many people who are willing to do that in their own way, how little it is, how big it is, that we would continue. Right. Thank you. Thank you all. Tina? Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> um, there's a few things that come to mind. One, we've had two grandchildren this year. Alan's twins each had a child and both by emergency C-section in the middle of the night, it's been crazy. But everybody's healthy and it's wonderful and we're thankful. We're thankful to have health care. Uh, it's expensive and everything, but we've needed it. She's in a boot right now and uh, anyways, that's another story. I guess one other thing, um, I'm, uh, we had a bear in our neighborhood and it tore apart my chicken coop. It, it couldn't get in, I think, but it did allow access. I'm pretty sure a raccoon got in after that. So I used to have Masha, Masha, Masha. <laughs> I'm thankful right now we still have Masha, Masha. <laughs> Thank All right, I'll finish this up here. I'll just quickly, because I'm actually in an anniversary of my own. 11 years ago on Thanksgiving, my partner and I moved into the house and land that we bought. Um, 
with the intention of turning it into a little homestead, subsistence farming life um, using organic permaculture methods. And we had a lot of challenges. The land was not suitable for farming. <laughs> and uh, my mother died the, around the same week we closed on the house, unexpectedly, and left me to care, help care for my dad for the next six or so years. But we took down trees, and we built soil. We brought in animals, and we built soil. And we planted more trees, and we built more soil. And after 10 years of that, we just had a really great season. Some of you have heard me tell the story of the stress I feel around our goat birthing, but we had two or four healthy little critters delivered. All went well. And we had a year when which our bees didn't just live, they actually made honey. That's so rare these days. Our fruit, fruit trees finally started to bear, so I put up about 50 quarts of peaches. And the great soil is finally pumping out food. I just filled the root cellar. We've got 100 pounds of carrots, a couple hundred pounds of potatoes, 400 pounds of winter squash, and a lot more. So we're really feeling like um, we've gotten somewhere, and it's really nice, especially in Thanksgiving, which is a lot about food and sharing that and being thankful that we can eat and um, that we can do so in such a really really lovely, healthy way we feel really good about. And I want to thank you all for sharing some of your thankfuls, and I'm sure the rest of you have some in your heart. And um, we are now going to finish up. I'm just going to say to you that this is our last official show of 2019. Come back Tuesday, January 28th. The theme of good accidents. Um, we will have one more program in 2019. We're part of the special live holiday program on December 19th for PPM TV. You are all invited. It starts at 6.30. We'll have stories focused on animals, and then we will be offering you a party with food or drink to further thank you for being our True Tales Live community. Uh, and let's thank John Levering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Chad Cordner, and Sam Adams. I'm Amy Antonucci. I think it's time for me to sign off now. Until <laughs> our next True Tales Live show in 2020. But stay tuned because David Frainer will be interviewing Nancy Lukens and Martin Rumscheid. Thank you all. I'm not used to getting these signals.